All right, we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. They didn't tell me how many to do, so I'm just doing them all, so just buckle up. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his present righteousness at the present time so that he might just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I get to do both parts today. Well, as you can see, we have probably a few less people at church than we normally do because a good part of the church is out on uh, the camp out. And so that reads the question of why we are here. So just as an informal poll as an elder, we're curious about these kind of demographics that go on in church. How many of you didn't go to the campground because your RV is in the shop? Someone in your family has recently had a, had a surgery or you had, you, maybe you came down with COVID or... You know, uh, maybe your, your camping tent has a big hole in it. The dog ate your email telling you that, that that was this Sunday and you didn't know. Or any other legitimate reason like that. Okay, there's a few, there's a few hands there. Now, the other part, of part B is how many of you are over the age of 25 and, and it is no longer comfortable to sleep on the ground? You decided not to put a whole lot of money into RV or you had one once and you drove it over a cliff after all the things have gone on to it. And you just, you just realize, if you're like me, your, your idea of roughing it is a three-star hotel when you go on vacation and not a four-star. So that would, that would be me. I've, uh, a fun camping experience. Uh, my first camping experience, I remember, I think I was about seven. Our family had lived in Oklahoma for a couple of years, and my dad took us all camping. So while my mom and my brother and sister are sleeping inside our huge Chrysler station wagon, my dad and I are out in the, the only two... Uh, sleeping bags that we had, and they, uh, and, and about, about midnight, a pair of skunks decide to, to come through our campground, and one of them, no joke, literally crawls on top of my sleeping bag, and I learned the importance of first-time obedience that day when my father said, don't move, <laughs> and it goes on. It just seems like camping and me just have never mixed. After Nance and I had been married a short time, camping's you know, a cheap holiday out of town. So we went to uh, uh, Lake Casitas. And usually when you go camping, it's either on, it seems like it's on asphalt or the ground is like dry toast. But our campsite had one little green spot, which is big enough to put our three-person dome tent that we had in there. So it was green. It gives a little softness. We figured that's a good idea. So we do that. We get through the night. I think we both woke up and something just seemed off. And then we noticed this terrible smell. 
And then we realized that that little green spot ended up being a squirrel graveyard that we had slept on for the whole night. So we just decided that the hotel route was just the way that what God had planned for us. We interpreted the signs. So uh, all kidding aside, now we're going to be going through the book of Romans. As some of you know, as an elder, once in a while, I get the opportunity to preach. I am more of a Bible study leader than a, a proper sermon uh, orator, as, as Pastor Brandon is. So what we're going to have today is you're going to have a mix of some of my Bible study from the book of Romans that I've done over the years, and also, especially the back half, will be quite a bit of Pastor Brandon's notes. So I encourage you, he is supposed to, I think sometime next week, he's going to record the message that he's doing now up there. And so if you want more detail than what I provide, you'll be able to get it that way. And I'm sure some of these points he's going to continue to hone as we come in in the following weeks. So we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 28. God's judgment, the law, and righteousness. Oh, it didn't move ahead. Okay. Oh, can we go back one? Somehow we skipped it. Yes, there we are. Anyway, uh, in 1993 for Valentine's Day, Nancy got me very nicely this International Inductive Study Bible. And uh, I think it's still available out in print. You can probably still get it from Amazon or Christian bookstores. But it's a, it's a study Bible that gives you instructions at the beginning and kind of like a, things in the summary in the end and it provides you with the keywords. but you do all the work to interpret the Bible for yourself. And so I worked on uh, doing the entire Bible, and it took me nine years. So, I mean, I took my time doing it, and uh, it was a wonderful way, and it's probably the greatest devotional experience of my life. It certainly was the longest but it really helped me to understand God's word in a deeper way and to help me to be a better, um, I think, a better Christian and to be a better study leader. But uh, one of the things I know some time ago, Chris Blake talked about that they have shirts, I think, when they, they do some crazy thing like, you know, you know, go up the Poconos and a pogo stick or something like that. They wear these shirts that say, we do hard things. Well, for me, when I study the Bible, I start with what I consider the easier or the shorter books first and then just sort of work my way through. And the very last book I did was the book of Romans because I had so much respect for it and I knew how difficult it was going to be. So personally, I put all the hard things off to the very end till I can't, I've got to finish the book, so I've got to do this last one. So that's how it happened with the book of Romans. From a very early age, I was taught that there's the four most important books theologically in the Bible, and you can write this down if you want, are uh, the book of Exodus, the book of Isaiah, the Gospel of John, and the book of Romans. Romans is considered the constitution of the Bible. And it, even what we read today, those 10 verses, it's, it can be so difficult. You just read those and your brain just kind of goes to mush. It's, it's just, even 10 verses at one time in Romans can be just too much. So we'll try to break it down a little bit. And like I said, I'm going to get into some of my, my study notes and stuff. So I hope this won't bore you too much. If, uh, if it is, just a uh, punch in the football game score or something like that and hold up the screen for me to see it and then I'll know to move on. There we are. So Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, Corinth was the one place where Paul got to be a pastor for some time. And Paul was always, part of his, the downside of his personality was is he, he wanted people to grow so fast that he just sometimes had unreasonable expectations. And he's in this carnal uh, Corinth church where they're, they're, they're having to deal with all their issues of idolatry and licentiousness and everything else. 
And they're always far, fit, arguing and stuff. And you kind of read that in getting 1 Corinthians. But he complains about that he has to spend so much time on the elementary things of the gospel that he doesn't get to get the meat of things. Well, church, today we're in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is a nice piece of steak. Now, looking at that steak up there, it looks like the bottom. I don't think the bottom side's been cooked a little bit. I like my steak medium. I want about a quarter inch more of, of more gray in there before you get into the red. So that's a little bit much. But when you get to the book of Romans, you really need to take it like you would a piece of steak into small pieces. Take your time with it. Make sure you chew it nice and thoroughly and that you have something good to drink. I don't know. If you're younger, maybe it's milk. It might be a, an, adult, an adult beverage or a good glass of water or something like that. But make sure you have plenty of moisture to take it in. You want to take Romans in in small steps. And, and I encourage you as... Uh, Going through the book of Romans is a great way to grow in your spiritual maturity. So I would encourage each of you during the week to be reading along with us. Uh, if you didn't get something from last week, spend a little bit of time in Romans. Look at a study guide. Try to help, help yourself along with this because you, this, instead of it just being a series the church goes through, this can be something that can really help to strengthen and confirm your faith in maybe ways you didn't know it could. All right, we're going to get into some of my notes here. And like I said, I like to give context. And even though we're already into chapter 3, I feel like I, I need to do a couple backward steps so we understand the Apostle Paul a little bit and we understand why we are where we are in Romans. So timeline for the Apostle Paul. He was born in Tarsus in 5 AD. And if some of you want, you can take notes. Or if you want to use your phone, if you want to just take a click of the screen to save yourself time, you can do that, whatever you like. He, he was Jewish, but he was born a Roman citizen. He was educated and raised to be a Jewish scholar uh, by Galilee. He begins his persecution of Christians between 30 and 35 AD. He's present and approving, so he's an accomplice of the, at the martyrdom of, of Stephen in either 32 or 33 AD. And then uh, Saul's conversion, his name is changed to Paul, happens in Acts chapter 9, which we did about a year ago, and that's in AD 37. And then for about the next 10 years, Paul is set adrift, as it were. He's in the Arabian desert. He's, he's learning directly and from personal revelation from God and really having to change his entire worldview that he realizes what he's persecuted is, is actually Jesus. And he, he, he feels compelled to be ready when God calls him. So he spends about 10 years in the desert, and his first converts are probably nomads that he meets out in the, uh, uh, in the byways. His missionary journeys start from 47 to 56 AD, and you find those all in the book of Acts. And then in 56, 57 AD, Paul's in Corinth, as we talked about. It was the only place where, because normally he went from town to town, he established a church, and then persecution drove him out of the town. But in Corinth, he was able to stay for two years, and he really got to pastor the flock there and realize how challenging it is not to just give a message and then go on to the next town, but deal with people as they struggle with their spiritual growth and all the problems that a church can face. While he's in Corinth, he writes the book of Romans in 57 AD, and probably just a few months after that, he's taking a, uh, a large missionary gift to the poor, starving uh, Jewish Christians that are in Jerusalem, and it's while he's there that he's arrested. He spends about two years in jail before he's finally brought to Rome in about 60 AD. So that's a little bit of a background. Now, some of you might notice, at least for me, I feel when I read the book of Romans, you really feel like it's like you're in court and you're hearing an attorney who's aggressively promoting his perspective of why his client is guilty or not guilty. And 
his tone here it can be very harsh. I mean, he, he is taking no prisoners. He, he intends to win this argument thoroughly. And, whereas if when you read like the book of Hebrews, which can also be difficult for us as a Gentile audience to read, but there's this sense of that he's trying to compassionately show them why Christ is the superior uh, uh, way and they don't need the law and how he is superior to Old Testament prophets and that sort of thing. So there's a little more of a compassionate, sort of reasonable plea to the people in Hebrews that you don't find here in, Hebrew, uh, in Rome, in Romans. So what is Paul up against? So just to give you a little bit of a context, and some of these are things that you probably know in the next two, two slides, what Paul was up against. He was a godly man, yet he was a citizen of a tyrannical pagan government. Not unlike what we see today with the pressure that we have in our own country, things that we thought we'd never uh, be we would be forced that we would not be allowed to public worship. There's, you see this problem happening here in Canada and England and other places too. The church is definitely feeling the pressure from the, the secular world. He once was a devout Jew who persecuted Christians, but now with his conversion, he's seen by his fellow Jews as a blasphemer following a false god. And so they're now ironically seeking to kill him. He's called to preach a revolutionary new gospel to Jew and Gentile, but the Christian faith is already under siege. On the one hand, you see this uh, th throughout the, in the New Testament. We'll see it so in the next slide. There was a group called the Judaizers. And these were Jewish Christians who had, fo had followed the Jewish law and the Torah their whole lives. God comes into their life. They realize they need salvation. But they sort of think Jesus is sort of an add-on. And so... Uh, where we, they, they, because they were Jews, they just had to take this additional step and then everything would be okay for them. But Gentiles, that they, they uh, in their thinking, had to be circumcised and follow the law to receive salvation. And on the far end of that were these, this expanding group of, uh, of Christian Greeks called the Antimans who believed you were saved by grace, but you continue to live the way you want and remain in sinful lifestyles. And sadly, that's what happens so much in American society and even in the American church today. There's a lot of us who see Jesus as our savior. He's our life insurance policy. We're saved by him. But we kind of pretty much leave Monday through Saturday up to our own. We, we, just, we make the decisions in our life of who we should marry, who should we live, what should we do with our life, what, uh, what, what we should be involved in. We leave it up to ourselves if we feel like it. And that, that unfortunately, is also an error. So we, we see that faith is a battlefield. And like I said, it's not just here in Rome, but you can find, you can find this, this tone throughout, uh, throughout the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 1, the Judaizers go to Galatia shortly after Paul has left, and they begin to confuse the new converts to Christianity. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul speaks harshly of the dogs demanding Jew, uh, Jews, I mean, Gentiles be circumcised. Paul was not subtle about these sort of things. The Apostle Paul harshly rebukes false teachers in Titus. And in Acts chapter 10 and 11, as we, we did about a year ago, that's where Peter has the vision and he goes to the house of Cornelius. He presents the gospel and whole families become immediately saved and they start showing evidences of the Holy Spirit. And the, the church has to deal with, uh, with this all of a sudden, oh, Gentiles are included into the faith now too. And it comes, it comes to a head in Acts chapter 15. That's known as the Council of Jerusalem. And that's where every, both sides are sort of presented. And the church sort of reluctantly and some, some still hold on to the, this idea that, you know, Gentiles need to be saved, but they add a couple conditions to that. So it wasn't, 
It was still a process, even, even later here as Paul gets into Romans. So the issue of justification by faith is so important. Um, when I did my study, the first five chapters of Romans are tied together to this very important church doctrine and vital biblical truth. So all that to say, justification by faith, is, it's, it's central to what we believe as Christians, and uh, we, we need to have a handle on that as we mature in our faith. Now, kind of wrapping up some of the stuff that we talked about, uh, that Pastor Brandon talked about last week, about the facts about righteousness, and just this is the building blocks that we need to have, that not a single person is righteous on their own. That includes you and me. Psalm 14.3 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. So that, that pretty much makes up everyone. And a lot of this gets more into Pastor Brandon's actually part of the sermon, so, but again, there's some really good stuff here. By knowing the law and God's word, even by observing it, that is not enough to make us righteous. The purpose of God giving us the law is to become conscious of our sin and our need for a savior. And elementary, that's something as Christians, we all need to have that basis. There were all sinners that need to be saved. Romans 3.20, which was the last verse that Brandon covered last week. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. All right, so all that preamble, I apologize. It was a little long for you. And now we get into the meat and potatoes of Romans 3.21. How is righteousness imparted? And, of course, I immediately have to take a step back, and I talked with Brandon about this. One of my little ticks as an elder is the importance of understanding the different types of righteousness. Now, the one that you're probably most familiar with is the one that Christians are always accused of being. We're always accused of being self-righteous. And it's, it's, that, it's that perversion of faith where we think we've done something for God. We think we're holier than other people. Uh, one of the, uh, we, we, we seek to do things to make ourselves look better or, or to perform in a way that makes others uh, give us adoration instead of God. And we often do this by saying, well, you know, I may not have had a great week this week, Lord, but I'm not Vladimir Putin, so I, I must be holy. So I, let me tell you, that's a very low bar. So I strive for something a little higher than that. So that's the self-righteousness. The one we're going to discuss today, and the most important of these, is the imparted righteousness. That's the righteousness that comes into your life when, when, when you accept Jesus as your Savior, and he, begin, he, be, he forgives your sins and begins that transformation in your life. And without imparted righteousness, no, no one will be see, seen in a right relationship with God. It is the vital, important one. Now, the third one is called imputed righteousness. And this is the righteousness that happens in the life of a believer as you grow. You see it a lot of times with new Christians where all of a sudden they have this radical transformation in their life and they begin to give up some of their old habits and their old destructive ways. The way that they talk and the way that they treat other people begins to change and their friends say, hey, what happened to you? What's so different? Well, that's the beginning of this imparted righteousness as we become more Christ-like. Uh, Galatians 5.22 are the fruit of the spirits. Those are the sort of things that you start to see in a believer as they mature and grow. And I mean, and it's a beautiful thing when you see an older uh, believer, someone who's been a, a Christian for a long time, and so much of their life has become transformed. And they, they really are a saint. They're, they're a representative of God. And that is a great righteousness, and that's something we all want to see in our life. But it, it isn't the righteousness that saves us. It's imparted righteousness that we're talking about today. So maybe a little bit of a stickler for a detail, but I just want to make sure we're talking about the imparted righteousness, which is the vital one for our Christian lives. So from Romans 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Even before the New Testament, God revealed himself in the Old Testament in many ways. The Mosaic Law, the judgments against sin, his appeal through the prophets, his blessings to the obedient. Paul tells us in Roman, Romans 1.17, a new righteousness is revealed, one that is by faith. And apart from the law, and I, I love this section here, in the Old Testament law, righteousness came by man behaving. But under the gospel, righteousness comes by believing. The law could witness to God's righteousness, but it could not provide this for sinful man. Only Jesus could do that. Now moving on to verse 22. As it says in verse 22, righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God's righteousness imparted to us is a gift through faith. Saying we trust, is not what, uh, trust in God is not what saves us. It is personal, individual faith in Jesus Christ that saves us and justifies the lost sinner. James chapter 2, a verse probably familiar to many of you in verse 19, believing there is a God is not enough. Even the demons in hell believe that, but this does not save them. So, so as it says in verse 22, there is no distinction or difference. We all come to faith through faith in Christ. It doesn't matter whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, from a Tascadero or Paso Robles, Dodger or Giant fan. Uh, maybe some question there. We'll think about that one. It doesn't matter. We, 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 uh, we, we all come to faith through Christ the same way regardless of our, ba our cultural backgrounds or anything else. And so now we get to the first verse in uh, what is called the Romans Road, which we'll, we'll briefly touch on in the end there. And many of you ha maybe have this verse memorized. It's a great verse and part of a, part of a section to help lead others to Christ. And most of you probably know this by, uh, by heart from verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God gave his law to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. But the good news of salvation is made available to all men. Every one of us needs to be saved. There is no difference when it comes to condemnation. We are all under it. God declared all men guilty so that he may offer to all men his gift of salvation. And it is a beautiful gift. So now as we get to verse 24 here, I mean, some of you who've been through the new members class and stuff, maybe you kind of wonder why we spend so much time in the beginning section about what we believe and understanding what you believe, is we want to make sure that you have this right. Now, most of us know that uh, works don't save us, that being a good person isn't enough, that we, we need to trust in Christ. But sometimes there, there can be this little distinction that we think that sometimes God did his part and we say the right words and one and one become two and sort of like that we somehow had a part in our salvation. And that is not strictly true. It says in verse 24 that we are justified freely. It is not a kind of a work that we do, but only God can do. Say, saying words isn't what saves us. The word freely translates without cause. There is no cause in us that would, in, would merit the salvation of God. It is all grace. As most of you know, this is a, a tricky part here. God's mercy is not getting what we do deserve, but God's grace is giving us what we do not deserve, and that's salvation. Faith is how you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. I imagine everyone's head spinning right about now. It's, it's all right. We need to look entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work 
and rest on that alone. How can a righteous God justify you and me? Well, at first, it's at great cost. Salvation for us is free, but for God, it is not cheap. God's holy law had to be satisfied. There needed to be a payment for the sin, and sacrifices were made in blood. Jesus had to die on the cross in order to satisfy the law and justify the lost sinners. John chapter 1, verse 29, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I read it many times, and it wasn't until many years into my faith that I really felt it impact me this way. But it's the words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as Jesus is baptized, he's ready, getting ready to do his own major 40-day camp out in the wilderness, probably not unlike what they're experiencing up there. Be glad you're here. And before he went and did his first miracles at the wedding of Cana, at the, from the very beginning, from the very start, there was, no, there, there was no doubt that he had came here to live and die and become the appropriation for our sins. And just imagine, just imagine in giving your firstborn son for someone else. It's, it, it's, it's unbelievable grace and mercy that God provides to us. It's a, it's a cost that none of us could pay. And he provides this righteousness and perfect justice. Not only was God's law, which demanded justice, fully met in Jesus' sacrifice, but also it fully expressed the love of God's heart, that Jesus' sacrifice took care of all the sins from Adam and, until now. And so now we get to the last block of, uh, of, of chapter 3 here. Uh, the nice thing is, is when I preach, I preach a little quicker than Pastor Brandon, but we've got a couple more slides to go, so don't put on your coats quite yet. Justification by faith establishes the law in verses 27 through 31. There is no boasting about our work saving us, nor can we boast in our keeping the law saving us. Faith is what establishes the law. There is not a way of salvation for the Jews and another for the Gentiles or anyone else. Also, when we are a believer, we do not boast in our faith, but we boast in our wonderful Savior. And as the great... Uh, the great Reformation theologian Martin Luther uh, said in his Hallmark speech, in Christ alone through faith alone. And that just sums up what we've, do, we've done uh, here this morning. Our salvation is in Christ alone through faith alone. Polo then goes on to say, through justification by faith, we do not overthrow the law, but instead we uphold it. And that's to be continued in chapter 4. So that's where we'll be getting next week. And so we come once again to my, uh, my slide here. The meat uh, leads us back to the milk. So even as you, we've been chewing on this piece of steak for the past 20 to 30 minutes, I don't know how fast I've been talking, but <laughs> we've been chewing on this. It's just something to digest and just the fundamentals of salvation and what it, what it really means and making sure we have a handle on. It's not the words that we say, but it's in what Christ has done. That's what saves us. It leads us back to the loving. Uh, now we need to have a little drink to have, but it's... It's this idea, it all comes back to the loveness, a love of God. It says in John 3, 16 that uh, he loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. It all, even in the, the, this heavy text of scripture, it comes back to the love of Jesus and the milk of his grace. And so now we get there. If any of you want to take a picture of this, I'm not going to spend a long time on this because uh, Pastor Brandon wants to go in a little bit of a different way. But we've, we've talked about the Romans Road. You can look them up on the internet or something. You can find that. And the verses for the Romans Road, I'll just say them in case you want to write them down or you want to take a picture. It's Romans 
uh, verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 23, and Romans 10, 9, one of my favorite verses uh, in the Bible. It's one that I would, used to use. I would try to lead people to Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And to me, that was a great, great way to present the gospel. And the last one is Romans 10, 13. But we're going... Uh, that, that's a, a way for a whole generation that has, has, has taught and evangelized this, this way. But of course, Pastor Brandon has a new way. Oh, uh, do we have any more slides there, Rick? There we go. So we have the... Uh, this is a new way to kind of visually present the gospel. So like if you were at a coffee table or you're talking with someone and you wanted to read a, a chart and uh, diagram and explain this in the far left there with the, uh, the, yeah, the heart is red, the red heart. That's God's perfect design for our lives of what he originally intended for us in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Uh, yeah, Genesis one, chapters 1 and 2. But then sin enters in in chapter 3 and it takes us to that, uh, I don't know if that's a breaking Easter egg or what, what exactly that is there, but it's, it's the circle with the big crack in it. And this represents brokenness. And this is where all of us, apart from Christ, live. We live in a, wo- a world of war and disease and tragedy and just fr- uh, general frustration with everything in life. And as you can see by the lines going out of there, sort of like reminds me of the Journey Escape album with the uh, little arrows trying to exhibit the world coming apart. Those represent all the kind of substitutes in our life that we try to make uh, apart from Christ. And this can be in money or riches. It could be in relationships. It could be in destructive things such as pornography or, or sex or drugs. There's all kinds of things that we do to try to fill this emptiness that's in our hearts. But by ourselves, there's no way that we can go from brokenness back to God's design. God had to provide the way. And in the bottom of the circle, of course, you see the cross there, and that represents Jesus. That God gave us Jesus to... Uh, he, 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 come, he comes down from heaven, lives among us, serves as the... Uh, serves as the, uh, the sacrifice for our sins on the cross and then the third day rises again. And from that, he can then, he establishes a way from brokenness uh, through Jesus back to God's perfect design for our life. And as the arrow goes back, that's about growing. As we start to mature, uh, mature in our faith, we become more and more into God's design for our lives. We can then, uh, from, from, from there, we can then, with that red dotted uh, arrow there, we can go back to those in our own communities and families who are broken and help to share Jesus with them. So that's the, the new way to make it less complicated, but then what do I know? But uh, thank you so much for this morning. Uh, I, I'm going to uh, come down in a minute. Maybe you've had a chance to think about some things, about the priorities of where your faith is. And we'll come and share communion together as the elders go and pass the elements out now. So, uh, uh, take, take this time to quiet your hearts and uh, receive what God is saying to you this morning and I'll be back up in a minute. Thank you.